Welcome to the Institute for Person-Centered Care. My name is Ann Garten, and I am your host. And I'm really excited today because we are celebrating Occupational Therapy Month, and in that have decided to highlight World Autism Acceptance Day, which is April 2nd. So we're doing that interdisciplinary. Uh, We have an OT specialist, a PT, and speech-language pathology with us. And I'm going to have each one of you uh, introduce yourselves. And how about we start with Jennifer? Would you go ahead and introduce yourself, please? Yeah, I'm Jenny Peterson. I am faculty here at St. Ambrose University in the Occupational Therapy Department. I have been a practicing occupational therapist for 12 years. And so while I teach right now, I still do uh, see children on a summer basis and really enjoy that. So that's a little bit about myself. Go for it, Katie. And I'm Katie Powers. I'm a physical therapist. I'm a faculty member here in our physical therapy program at St. Ambrose. And I have that position as a half-time role. And the other half of my time I spend in the uh, Genesis Outpatient Pediatric Therapy Center. So I've been treating pediatric patients for over 14 years. Excellent. Welcome. Thank you. My name is Megan Hinton, and I am a speech-language pathologist at the Genesis Outpatient Pediatric Therapy Center. I'm only going on three years, (laughs) not quite as long as Jenny and Katie, but three years as a speech-language pathologist and work with a lot of kids with autism, so I'm excited to talk about it. Excellent. Welcome to you all. I'm glad to have you. I think a little bit we should start with what is autism, right? Because not all of our community members or students who may be listening understand what that uh, diagnosis looks like. We know, according to Autism Speak, that one in 36 children are affected in the United States, and it has a broad range of conditions characterized by challenges in social skills, um, repetitive behaviors, uh, speech, and nonverbal communications. And sometimes those are influenced by genetics and environmental factors. But I wonder, Megan, if you could start us as well in that um, we know each person is affected differently, which means each family is affected differently, right? Mm -hmm. And we need to think about these things in a person-centered way. And you're part of that team. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that looks like on on that diagnosis end, because a lot of times our speech-language pathologists are that front line with them. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I spent some time as an intern at the Center for Disabilities and Development in Iowa City. Um, and then I worked at um, ChildServe in Johnston, Iowa. And in both of those places, I worked on interdisciplinary diagnostic teams. It's a really, really fun job and also can at times be a really challenging job. You're giving parents a lot of information when you make a diagnosis. It's a team approach. We try to be as thorough as possible and give families as much information as possible. But it's also a lot to take in for some families. So we're there to try and best support them as much as we can at the time of diagnosis. But there's also some parents that they hear the word autism and the whole world kind of stops. They don't know what to do next. So I find that going from diagnosis into treatment is really important in some ways because if families can't take in all that information if they're in a state of shock or surprise or even worry sometimes, anxiety. If they're in that place, then it becomes important for the treatment team to then become the support system um, to help them figure out what's next for my child. 
Indeed, very much so. And I think I'm going to pull in here Jennifer in, in a moment in, in that conversation. But before we do so, I think, Katie, I wonder if you can speak a little bit, or maybe, Jennifer, you're more comfortable with this, in talking about, do we say a child with autism or an autistic person, right? Uh, and, and what does that look like? And how do you guys approach that in practice? Yeah, I'll go ahead and take that. So, you know, that's really a hot topic right now, discussing right now, APA, if we were to write this up, we say a child with autism because we put that person first. The autism community, though, has been great advocates in saying that this is a way of thinking and we're proud of this way of thinking. And it's just because it's a different way, it doesn't make it wrong or a disability, but rather let's look at that ability component. And so... Uh, the autism community has stated that they would like uh, more of this autistic child stated first. Now, as a profession and um, a person that's working with each individual family, I think it's so important to work with with those individual families and asking them what they would like, which, and I know this goes back to what you would say is absolutely person-centered in that we work with each individual because they're, um, and respect each individual's response of what they would like to be, have that name or label as. Indeed. And I think we need to also pull in the, the thought process that when we talk about person-centeredness, when a, a child is diagnosed, we're also talking about family-centeredness, right? And as that individual who has been diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder, then we also know that that family may change throughout their lifetime, right? And so continually asking about that at certain stages as that changes and, and, and as we grow and develop is really an important aspect. Would you agree, Katie? I agree. I think that the initial phase when a child is first diagnosed comes with, you know, the different stages of possibly grieving or processing the information. And so the outlook on how uh, they perceive their child or want their child to be referred to as or labeled that will change over time and, and how they have accepted the diagnosis or move forward with working with the child to treat the diagnosis and treat all the things that are going on certainly will change over time. Yeah. So we know that speech-language pathology is really going to impact um, the individual uh, around speech and language, uh, especially those who have those characteristics that, that they um, have to live with, right, mm -hmm. and, and change. But I wonder, because it is Occupational Therapy Month, right, if, Jenny, you could talk a little bit of what your role is in the, in the care of an autistic person. Yes, absolutely. So you said in the beginning that children with diagnosis, commonly one of the characteristics is that they have these restrictive or repetitive behaviors. And that's really where occupational therapy comes into play is because you'll find that children have different, what we call this term of sensory integration or sensory processing. So the so these, uh, the child has uh, a different way of how they're taking in sensory information from their environment and then how they're then responding to that sensory information. And so because of that, uh, occupational therapists work with really understanding the child's ability to take in sensory information and uh, be able to adapt in a manner that's appropriate or able to within, within that specific environment. Like, you can get mad and upset uh, and punch a pillow when you're in bed, but you can't um, be at school and, and punch a wall, right? So j there's just a time and a place to be able to have a certain 
response to your environment. And that's one thing that we work on. You'll find a lot of that coming up with transitions. So children will have difficulty with maybe transitioning from the lunchroom back to the classroom. And so that might be a a specific time period where occupational therapists will help the child and the teachers and the family. There are other times like at recess or playing with other children because there's so many dynamic approaches to just being able to play with another child on the playground and situations that come up that um, an occupational therapist can really help that child be successful in that um, environment. So the majority of kiddos who are diagnosed are diagnosed anywhere between 18 months and and three years typically, right? And I wonder, Megan, if you want to talk a little bit about what that looks like, because a lot of times that is because they're not getting words out, right? And having uh, some speech language uh, concerns. Yeah. Amazingly enough, speech is oftentimes the first line of defense, so to speak. Um, We get a lot of referrals from primary care physicians and pediatricians um, saying, you know, this child's not talking. Um, They're not at their developmental level, according to whatever screening and checklist that that doctor does. Um, And so before anything else, oftentimes they just say, go to speech. And then sometimes it kind of becomes part of our job to have that conversation with families like, has anyone spoken to you about autism? Do you know what autism is? is and what that looks like and what that means. Um, So I've had a fair number of those conversations. Sometimes they can be kind of easy and sometimes they can be extremely challenging because for some families, the unknown is the scariest part. Will my child ever talk? Um, Will I ever hear my child say, mom? (laughs) Will I ever, um, like even on the OT side, will my child give me a hug and things like that? And so there's all these things that can be really overwhelming to parents when they come see us for the first time. So um, on the speech end, my job is mostly to kind of support these families and say, like, we're going to find the best possible way for your child to tell you, you know, what they want, what they need, what they feel. Sometimes we use alternative methods. We use tablets. We use pictures. We use all kinds of different things. But at the end of the day, we want safe and effective communication for that family and for that child. And diagnosis or not, that's usually my end goal. And I usually tell parents it's not going to change how I treat your child. It's not going to change who they are as a person. It might just give us some more information on how their brain is structured, how they think, how they process the world, and how they best communicate. So that diagnosis doesn't mean bad things. It just means that your child's going to learn a different way, and we got to figure out how they're best learning, and we got to help bridge that gap. That's kind of our job. Katie, I wonder, sometimes I think an autistic child may never see you in in PT, right? But there are some who may, based on the characteristics that... So I wonder if you want to share a little bit of what that looks like in your role as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There is a lot of um, information coming out and research articles coming out highlighting the early motor delays in infancy that then are children that are later diagnosed with autism. And so working with infants quite frequently with motor delays... They're not at an age where they should be showing communication yet. So we're able to start detecting some of these things earlier and earlier based on children who are showing gross motor delays in infancy. They're not rolling. They're not sitting. They're not crawling. And then we also realize that they're not advancing with their fine motor skills or making eye contact or reading books with their parents. And so not that every child with a motor delay in infancy will lead down that path, but we are seeing signs of it 
earlier and earlier and making those connections. So um, I, I would say that I play a role in that advocacy or, you know, communicating back with the pediatricians about those concerns when we're starting to connect the dots a bit even earlier. And so then fast forwarding into those toddler years or early childhood, quite frequently there are issues with body awareness and coordination and balance and um, if they are a physically active child, they typically aren't participating in community activities, um, keeping up with their peers, playing on a soccer team and things like that. So um, in order to keep them successful in the classroom, in the PE you know, classroom, um, those are things that we can all help with in physical therapy as well. Jenny, I wonder if you can pull in a little bit, because I believe to be true, and you're going to correct me if I'm wrong, in in your role, you are also, and we're we're all being family-centered, but I think in your role, you're also able to support that family in a, in a different way as an occupational therapist, you know, in their daily lives and in, the, in their daily work, right? And I wonder if you can share that a little bit. Yeah, so occupational therapy is unique in that it doesn't quite fit neatly in this med- in a medical model because we do look at that person with that mind, body, and even spiritually. So we look at just this holistic view of the child and their family and what they're wanting to do and what they need to do within that day. And that's where that term of occupational therapy, the occupation piece is that the occupation to us means what does that child need to do? Do they need to be able to get out of bed? Do they need to be able to brush their teeth, take a shower, wash their hair? Some of those basic daily living tasks, that's what we consider occupations. And that's what we want to know about as a therapist is what are you having difficulty with in your day-to-day life that we can, we can help you with? Typically, I'll ask, what are the top five areas that I can help you with? Um, And those are my goals. Those are my priorities to be able to get your child to be as independent as possible in achieving uh, those tasks. Megan, Mm -hmm. got any examples of of how you have seen all of this come together? Because a lot of times you you really are a bit of that lead of the the team, right? Uh, And so I wonder how how that looks and, and, um, and how the providers are um, providing options because, again, we need to be person and family-centered. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have done some co-treating as well in the treatment phase of things, and I have done several co-treats with occupational therapists. have yet to co-treat with a PT, but I'd love that. Um, And it becomes a lot of questions kind of up front for the other Um, disciplines and for the family. Like, okay, if I was co-treating with Jenny, Jenny, what are your goals for this child? And what are my goals for this child? Um, How can we integrate those together to then meet the goal of the family? So it's kind of that, you know, three prong, got to ask what your goals are, what your goals are, what my goals are, and kind of mesh them together. If the family's goal is I want my child to be able to sit and read a book with me, Great. I want a child to be able to identify pictures and be able to point to things. And I'm sure Jenny wants the fine motor skill of being able to turn the pages and being able to, from a sensory standpoint, regulate well enough to sit for a long stretch of time. So we often use a very play-based model to incorporate all of those things. So finding what is a child's job is to play, kind of like Jenny was saying, that's their occupation. That's what they're supposed to do when they're little. So we find these play activities for children and figure out what's going to meet my goals, 
Jenny's goals or the OT or the PT or whoever, and how is that going to help the family? Because at the end of the day, even if my goals align with the other disciplines, if it's not meeting the needs of the family, then what's the point of that? Indeed. I think that's the biggest piece. Their goals truly come first, but we may need to help break those goals down for them, mm-hmm. right? I think we go in, uh, many of us are parents and we go in, and but we want them to graduate from college or have a job or what have you. Well, let's start here. How do we get there by by starting here? And, and, and I think that's really important in having those baby step conversations and, and breaking it down for the family, right? Mm-hmm. Let's get these types of things successful and then we may be able to grow from there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we certainly, as an occupational therapist, we In that assessment process, it's really helpful. We will have the child participate in um, a variety of, some of them are standardized assessments, but then others are just observation because we want to know where is the child currently at and what can we do to help them best achieve so that they're achieving at the level of their peers or as just as independent as possible. And so that really occurs in that first phase of evaluation. And then continually assesses throughout, right? Yes. Uh, that consistent change. And obviously, th- that individual may not need the treatments of this team all their lives, but at different points of their lives, they may find this team really resourceful and helpful, correct? Yeah, you're starting to see more of that called episodic care. And so it may be that there's a short period of time that they're receiving OTPT speech, but then maybe they do, you know, we kind of say a graduate for a period of time, but then they come back and reiterate in uh, and, you know, and they have new goals that we start working on. But again, this is very family-centered and person-centered. So while I'm speaking to episodic care, Megan, you may want to speak to a different type of care that could also be a little bit more longer. Yeah, I've definitely had some long-term patients that, you know, they start out at a place where they're not able to communicate at all, and then they start meeting goals and they're doing really well and they are starting to communicate more but then they start to get to school age. And then parents, like you said, have new goals. Like even if they're in speech therapy for most of their life, their goals are still going to change. So maybe when they're toddlers, our goal is any communication. Can we point? Can we reach for something? Can we um, say a word? Can we do a sign, like sign for more, all done? And then as they get older, they've really mastered those skills, which is great, but maybe they're not ready to graduate because now we're going into school and teachers ask us questions. (laughs) And how do we manage that new hurdle. Um, So sometimes that long-term care doesn't mean that they aren't progressing and that they aren't succeeding, but I think that the, the challenges change over time. Indeed. I wonder if you want to also address the um, uh, example of applied behavioral analysis and, and that treatment versus others as well. ABA is also a hot topic in the world of um, autism. And I think that um, applied behavioral analysis from the families I have met and worked with works really well for some of them. Some of those families that I've worked with find it to be extremely helpful for them. It's a lot more structured sometimes. Um, I find then what, how we treat, um, and sometimes that helps kids thrive. And sometimes it can be really frustrating. Sometimes, um, having a little bit less structure, a little bit more child-led works better for that individual. Um, So that's something that also really comes down to the person and the family and what type of treatment is going to help your child thrive. And is it some combination of both? Because we see that as 
well. Yeah, you know, and so we have three different therapy professions here. And just knowing that even though with our three, we, we have a variety of different tools that we can pull from to really help a child. And so, uh, Anne, you brought up one uh one therapy uh, style or tool, but certainly there we all have a, a lot of different tools that we can choose in order to best meet the needs of that child and that family. And I think that conversation is really important with the family to understand that we, we try something for so long. We give something a bit of time to try and, and see if it works, but we're always assessing that and then determining, well, this may not be that therapy for this individual, right? And, and let's try something else or, or the combination of things. And that looks very different for every single individual. So I think support groups and things like that are really important. And, and helpful because people get those ideas and those stories, but also not to get so fixated that, well, so-and-so's child said that, you know, they, this worked because it may not be the treatment for your own, your child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's also been change in all of our professions, I think, over the years. And I think there's been change in ABA as well. So there's also some families that might say, well, I heard this about OT or I heard this about ABA. I heard this about speech or PT or whatever. And sometimes we also have to tell families this, you know, this person treats differently or things have changed since 10 years ago or um, even within individual therapists, we each treat differently. I'm sure in all of our disciplines, like Katie doesn't treat the same as the PT in the room next to her. Everybody's kind of got their own toolbox and sometimes we share tools. Sometimes we use our tools differently. Um, And that's all part of meeting the needs of that family. Like, okay, if the tools in my toolbox aren't quite getting where we need to be, then I need to go to the person next to me and say, okay, what tools do you have? (laughs) What can I borrow? Indeed. You know, I I saw a quote and and in this conversation, it just popped into my head and I honestly have no idea who said it. I, I, I read it this morning when I was reviewing and prepping for today. And it was, um, when you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Right. And and as a result, all of our tools in the toolbox have to be consistently looked at and and determined which is best for that that individual. Uh, And I think that and, and the resources that are out there, there are a lot of resources compared to, you know, 20, 30 years ago out there. So I wonder if we want to touch base a little bit on that as well. So folks have those in their toolbox. Yeah, you referenced Autism Speaks in the beginning. And so that is really a great website that if you are just getting this diagnosis, they give you this handout of what to do in your first 100 days of getting this diagnosis. And they just really break down uh, some of those unknowns of initially learning about autism. So that is one resource that I would say check out. It's a free online website that you can, um, I believe we'll have the link to this. And so you can check out that one. Megan, do you have another? Um, Yeah, two that I really like referencing are the Autism Society of Iowa. Um, I've been to their conference twice, and they do a really nice job covering a wide variety of topics. And they also um, pull a lot of information from self-advocates, from autistic adults, um, and giving their input on uh, a whole lot of different things on just about everything. And so I like that they include self-advocates in the information that they share oftentimes, because um, that's really important. That's 
that's their identity, not ours. So I like that they share that. Um, and then as an SLP, um, I follow and listen to a podcast sometimes by Carrie Ebert. Um, she is also an SLP. Um, she has a son with autism and has a lot of experience and shares a lot of experiences about her son too. So if anyone listening is just curious about the family side of it, I think she's a good resource for that. Katie, do you have any? Yep. One additional resource specifically here for our local Quad Cities area is an organization called Up With Families. And it's a support group for families that have children with disabilities of all types. So not just for autism, but it's a really valuable resource for those families when they are new to a medical diagnosis and kind of navigating the waters of, uh, you know, looking into Medicaid services or uh, respite services for their child or all those other resources that they need. And so it's a great networking tool and an opportunity to learn from other families that have been in the same shoes. Um, So that's a great resource locally. Thank you. I think the other one to mention is anytime we talk about any um, uh, disease or disorders on our podcast is to look at the National Foundation for that specific uh, diagnosis, because many times they will not only share resources at a national level, but also share links for other resources by state. Uh, So I think that's really important as well for those listeners who may not be in the Quad Cities. So ladies... Thank you so much for joining me today. We so appreciate everything you do for all of your patients. Have a great one, everyone. Audio production for the Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast is provided by KALA-FM Studios in Davenport, Iowa. The show is engineered by Dave Baker. It is produced by Ann Garten, Director of the Institute for Person-Centered Care and Nursing Faculty at St. Ambrose University.